Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here in the middle of the week to study your word. We pray now that you will bless us as we study from the book of Romans. We thank you for this book and be with us in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's good to see you here. We have finished Romans chapter 1. We're going to do Romans chapter 2 this week. And by way of review, in Romans chapter 1, Paul gives his introduction of the gospel in the first 17 verses. And then the last half of Romans chapter 2, he starts his theological exposition of the book. And he shows that the wrath of God is going to be poured out against the wicked, specifically the Gentiles. And he lists some of the sins that the Gentiles are guilty of. And any Jew who would be reading the book of Romans could take comfort in knowing that they were not guilty of those horrible sins that the Gentiles in Rome were committing. Um, But then in Romans chapter 2, Paul kind of brings the hammer down on them and says, hey, you thought you weren't so bad, but actually you're on the same playing field as the Gentiles in Romans 1. So we're going to look at that this evening. So, in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1, after Paul shows that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the wicked, that those who don't believe that God is creator, who give up their bodies to live according to the lust of the flesh, and several other sins such as murder and things like that, Then Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doing the same things. Now, sometimes people read Romans chapter 2, verse 1, and they say, see, we shouldn't judge each other. And that's an okay application, but the Bible also teaches that by their fruits you shall know them. So if someone is out there murdering, um, we have every biblical right to say that that's wrong. And to say, hey, don't judge me, you know, I can do whatever I want. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not saying that if you see someone commit a murder, to then say, well, I can't judge them. That's not what the, the passage is teaching. All, what this passage is teaching is that the Jews consider themselves to be superior. And what Paul is trying to show is, and he'll go through this in chapter 2, that whether you are, are a Jew or a Gentile, if you're committing the sins that the Gentiles are in Romans chapter 1, or if you're breaking the law of God in other ways, as we'll see here in chapter 2, it doesn't matter because either way, breaking the law brings you into condemnation. That's the bottom line. So, yeah, you may not be going out and committing murder, but... If you're breaking the law of God in other ways, you're just as guilty. So don't go around and start judging those wicked people out there if you're 
breaking God's law as well. And of course, it's also not, what I'm not saying though is to say, well, hey, let's go out and judge those who aren't living up to the way we think we're, we're living up to. That's, that clearly Paul's condemning that attitude as well. Now, in verse 2, he goes on to say, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So now we see that, hey, there is a judgment. So for people to say that there is no judgment, Paul is saying the judgment of God is according to truth. And we can be thankful for that because I've often been thankful that God is judge and not me because I don't know everything and I don't want to. But God can... Um, with his infinite wisdom, make the right decision in the judgment. And the other thing that we see here is when it says the judgment of God is according to truth, it gives us the idea that God's judgment is impartial. So whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, God's judgment is according to truth. It's impartial. It doesn't matter which side you're on, so to speak. Then he gets into the issues, starting in verse 3. Thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. So you see the point he makes here. He set it up and he says, look, you know what they're doing is wrong. You're judging them for it, but do you think just because you're a Jew that you'll escape God's judgment if you're doing the same thing that God's going to judge them for? And the obvious answer is no. So Paul makes it clear, if you're judging others and you're doing the same thing, just as they don't escape the judgment, we won't either. And then in verse 4, we see the concept of God's grace coming out. Verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? So... Let's look at this verse a little bit here. What Paul is saying is, how can we despise the riches of the goodness of God? Now, he's right in the middle of talking about the wrath of God being poured out. But even in the middle of talking about the wrath of God being poured out on those who break God's law... He manages to bring in the concept of the riches and the goodness of God. And what we see with the, the riches of God, what is it? It's his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. And these things together lead us to repentance. So when we see God's character, which is full of riches, and the riches of God are goodness long-suffering, and forbearance. This leads us to repentance. Now, <clears throat> what Paul is saying is, is the, the implication is if we need to be led to repentance, that means that we are basically facing the wrath of God otherwise. That we have sinned against God, and because of that, We need to repent. Otherwise, why would you need to repent if you hadn't done anything wrong? So what Paul is saying is, look, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. 
And he associates, again, the goodness of God with the riches of God. And of course, when we think about the fact that we are sinners deserving condemnation and God in his great mercy sent Jesus to die for us, we can only vaguely begin to comprehend the riches of the goodness of God. Um, we don't deserve that. We don't deserve the riches of his goodness. We all deserve his wrath. But God is so good that he gives us the riches of his goodness, which will lead us, when we see what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we see his love. This leads us to repent from living a sinful life. Now, Paul contrasts these ideas in the following verses. So we see the riches of God's goodness in verse 4, but in verse 5 he says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of revelation, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So notice what Paul is saying here. Now you could say, well, who's Paul talking to, to here? As you continue to go through the chapter, you see that Paul is talking to the Jews. And if you remember Stephen, just before he was stoned, Stephen called the leaders of the Jewish nation stiff-necked. And here Paul is saying, you have a hard heart. And in Hebrews 3, Paul tells the Jews that he's writing to in the book of Hebrews, harden not your hearts. Remember your fathers in the wilderness who always provoked me to wrath? Harden not your hearts as they did back then. And so Paul is saying, hey, you may think you're a Jew and you may think you're all great, but actually you have a hard and impenitent heart. And he might say the same thing to God's people today. You may think you're a Seventh-day Adventist, but that doesn't make you any better than anyone else if, if you're out there breaking God's law. And notice what happens. When we have a hard and impenitent heart, we are treasuring up to ourselves the wrath of God and the day of judgment. So there's a contrast. There's the riches of God, which leads us to repentance, or there's a treasuring up for ourselves of the wrath of God. So you can either have the riches of God, which is his goodness, or you can have treasures in this life that lead to receiving the wrath of God. That's the contrast. And then in verse 6 it says, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So now, again, we see when he says every man, this includes the Jew and it includes the Gentile. And when it says God will render to every man according to his deeds, when you think of the word render, what do you think of that in the context of? A judge renders a verdict in court. And so this is judgment language. God is going to render in the day of judgment to every man according to his deeds. Now this is interesting. Paul is laying the foundation for what righteousness by faith is. And what he is saying here in chapter 2 as he's developing this concept of righteousness by faith is that the judgment will be based upon every man's deeds. Now, just to set the stage for where we're going, it's interesting, later on in verse 13, it says, not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. But then in Romans 3, it says, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
So Paul is not teaching a work your way to heaven concept here. But what he's saying is, is that, yeah, by your own deeds, you're not going to be justified. But if you're not obedient, you're not justified either. So we'll talk about how those two ideas go together. And they all fit in with the concept of righteousness by faith. So in verse 6, we see every man will be judged according to his deeds. Then going on in verse 7, it says, To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And then the contrast in verse 8, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation, and wrath. Verse 9 shows us tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. So here's the contrast in verse 7 verses, versus the verses of 8, 8 through 10. If in verse 7, as Paul says, by patient continuance and well-doing, the reward for that is eternal life. But if you obey not the truth but are unrighteous, you will receive the wrath of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And it's interesting here. Notice the language in verse 7. It says, patient continuance. Now, where, where else do we see the word patience um, in the New Testament? In Revelation, you also see it in Hebrews 10. So, and you also see it in Hebrews 12. Run with patience the race that is set before us. Hebrews 10, it's you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And then in Revelation 14, here is the patience of the saints. So what is Paul's biblical definition of patience in Romans chapter 2? It's continuance in well-doing. You see that? So that means to continue to do what's right no matter what. And that's not always easy. And of course, the question is, how is that possible? And Paul develops that concept as the book of Romans goes on. It's righteousness by faith, being justified by faith, being dead to sin. That's how we, by patience, will continue in well-doing. And it's interesting, those who have patience and continue in well-doing will receive glory, honor, immortality, eternal life. And that goes right along with the verse before where it says, God will render to every man according to his deeds. So if in the judgment God says, here's a person who has, through a life of patience, continued in well-doing, then what God renders to them is honor, glory, and eternal life. You see that? So patience, patient continuance in well-doing, those people will receive a reward in the judgment. You may say, well, this sounds like we're working our way to salvation. No, we're not. What we're going to see as we go through the book of Romans is the only way for this to happen is to have righteousness by faith. So it's not us. It's living a life of faith in which Christ's obedience is produced in us. But that obedience will be manifest in the lives of God's people. The, the contrast we see in the wicked who are contentious, they don't obey the truth, they are unrighteous, and what they end up receiving is tribulation and anguish. And this is just a, a minor point, but so many times the devil tries to deceive us into thinking that, you know, 
it may be true that if you live a righteous life, you'll get to go to heaven, but it's just so hard. And it's a lot easier to do it my way here on this earth. But what Paul is saying is if you do it the devil's way, what you're going to receive is tribulation and anguish, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And that doesn't sound good, obviously. Yeah, did, you had a hand back here? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Okay, I mean, patience and endurance have very similar meanings. I mean, you could, you could probably interchange those words, but the word patience is the word that I have in my Bible. So, in verse 9, we see that those who are disobedient, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, will receive tribulation and anguish. But then in verse 10, the contrast again, we see, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So it's interesting at the beginning of the chapter, the Jews get leveled out. They think, hey, I'm not as bad as those Gentiles in Rome who are doing all these awful sins. And yet Paul comes back about halfway through the chapter here and he says, look, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're, if you're working good according to God's grace, then you'll receive glory, honor, and peace, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. So obviously the good news of the gospel is not just for the Gentiles, it's also for the Jews. And then in verse 11, Paul says, for there is no respect of persons with God. And so the, ver- the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul develops so that he can get to verse 11 to, to prove his point. And the point that Paul is trying to make is that there is no respect of persons with God. doesn't matter if you were born into the Seventh-day Adventist church. doesn't matter if you were born into a heathen home. There is no respect of persons with God. If you break God's law and you are unrepentant, you will receive the wrath of God and the judgment. But if you're born into a family that knows what is right versus a heathen family, and you, by patient continuance and well-doing, receive God's grace and choose to follow Christ, and you repent, then whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you'll receive glory, honor, and peace. You'll receive eternal life. God is no respecter of persons. He's not going to say, oh, so you were born to the family of the general conference president, so plus 10 for you starting off, and then we'll see where it all ends up. No. Everything starts off at the same place. And the other thing is God isn't going to say, well, minus 10 for you if you weren't born into a Seventh-day Adventist family. He doesn't do that. He evaluates each case because he doesn't play favorites. And that's very encouraging to know when the judgment comes up. God does not play favorites. He is no respecter of persons. So Paul continues to develop this theme. It's pretty straightforward. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now, the contrast is clear. Paul has been talking about Jews and Gentiles. So who are those who have sinned without law and they perish without the law? Those are the Gentiles. They didn't know about the law. They broke the law. And so they perish or they're judged without the law. They perish without the law. And then those who know what's right, 
If you sin knowing what's right, you're going to be judged according to, to the law. Again, God is no respecter of persons. And those are the Jews in that se- the second half of verse 12. So all through chapter 2, Paul's making a comparison between Jews and Gentiles. And then notice verse 13. He says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, we already talked about that a little bit, connecting it to verse 6 where it says, God will render to every man according to his deeds. And then in Romans 3, the Bible also teaches that by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But you have to put both of those verses together because Paul wrote Romans chapter 2, verse 13. And Paul also wrote Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So they go together, and they aren't contradicting statements. But you can't just say, well, we know that nobody's justified by the deeds of the law, so it doesn't matter what you do. Because Paul just said in Romans 2.13 that only the doers of the law will be justified. But then on the other hand, you can't say, well, we know that only the doers shall be justified, so we better just work our way to heaven. That's not what Paul is saying either. You put both together. And as we continue to study, it's going to make more sense why Paul would say both things. Now, one question you may be thinking is, well, you know, it's... Isn't it not fair that some people were born Jews and some people were born Gentiles? I mean, didn't the Jews have a better chance to be saved than the Gentiles? Well, if you look at history, how many Jews accepted Christ as the Messiah? And how many Gentiles accepted the message of the apostles? So that that historical fact plays to the point that God is no respecter of persons. Now, in chapter 3, we're going to see that the Jews did have an advantage, but the advantage was supposed to be to use the truth of God to share it with others. It didn't make them better. Other than that, it gave them the truth of God. But what Paul's going to point out next in verse 14 is, is that just because Gentiles were born without a knowledge of the law, so to speak, one of the things we talked about last week was is that everybody has a conscience for good or evil. And someone who is born, who has never heard of God, has a conscience telling them that it's wrong to go out and kill somebody. And that alone is evidence that there's a supernatural being outside of humanity. I mean, how could we have an internal mechanism telling us, hey, don't do that? when our natural inclination is to do evil. But it's interesting what Paul says here in verse 14. He says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. So what Paul is saying is, look, there are people who have never heard of God who hear God's voice speaking to them by conscience. They listen to that voice, and their evidence that when you listen to God's voice, you don't have to break God's law. That's what he's saying here. So they are a law to themselves, even though they've never heard of the law. And then verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts that mean while accusing or else excusing one another. So notice this. It's God, see, see the word conscience in verse 15? 
God speaks to the conscience of those who have never even heard of him. And he speaks, of course, to those of us who have heard of him as well through our conscience. And this, again, shows that God is no respecter of persons. Whether you were born with a knowledge of him or into a family who has a knowledge of God or you're born into a situation that has no knowledge of God, God is no respecter of persons and he'll speak to your conscience. Now, in verse 16, continuing, it says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And then verse 17, Paul is going to make... His, starting in verse 17, he's going to make a pitch to the Jews about the way they live their lives. And he's trying to show them, and he's already done this by showing them, that God is no respecter of persons. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, if you're breaking God's law. And starting in verse 17, he's going to prove this to them. Now, some people try to say that what Paul is talking about in the next verses is the ceremonial law. If you pay careful attention to these verses, there is no way that Paul is simply talking about the ceremonial law here. It's got to be more than that. So starting in verse 17, he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. So here's a group of people that say, look, we have the law. God is with us because we have his law. Then in verse 18, And knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. So here's a group of people that know God's will, and they approve of things that are excellent because they know God's law. So, man, this must be a really good group of people. They know God's will, and they want to do things that are excellent according to the law. Start, and then verse 19 says, And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. So here's what Paul is saying. Look, you think that because you have God's law and you know who God is, you're pretty confident in yourselves that you're leading people in the right direction. And it's sort of, you can sort of see where he's going here. And he's saying, look, you, you teach people who don't know much. You're a teacher of those who are babes in the faith. But then in verse 21, he says, look, thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. So he's like, look, that's nice and great that you try to teach others what's right, but do you make sure that you're doing what's right? Do you live according to what you teach? And then the last half of verse 21, thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? So, hey, I don't care if you're pe teaching people to do what's right. If you're teaching people to do what's right and you're breaking the law of God, That's not acceptable. And notice, when it says teaching those to not steal, where, what law is that? That's the Ten Commandments. So this is clearly speaking of the Ten Commandments here. And then verse 22, Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? And remember, Jesus went deeper to the heart of what adultery is. I mean, people look at the externals and say, well, 
that person ran off with someone else so they committed adultery. But Jesus says, look, if you lust after a woman in your heart, that's adultery. So you may get up and say, oh, adultery is horrible. We shouldn't do it. And if you're lusting after someone in your heart, you're guilty of the same thing. That's right. So the law looks at the intent. And then going on, thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Verse 23, thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? So notice what, here, what he says here. You can boast that you have the law of God, but if you're breaking the law of God, you're dishonoring God's name. And it's interesting, if you look at the history of Seventh-day Adventism, in the 1888 General Conference session, the, the thing that God revealed to Ellen White about Seventh-day Adventists is that they were experts in preaching the law, but Christ had been lost sight of. And so, in many ways, Seventh-day Adventists, up to that point, were very similar to the Jewish people in that they exalted the law of God but then when God sent messengers that exalted Christ in the law, they didn't see the light in it. And so what that really meant was, is even though these people were supposedly making their boast in the law, they were breaking the law because they rejected the message of Christ and his righteousness. And if you reject the message of Christ and his righteousness, that means that you don't have his righteousness. And if you don't have his righteousness, what the book of Romans shows us is without Christ's righteousness, we are breaking the law. That's the bottom line. So Seventh-day Adventists in 1888 made their boasts in the law, but they were dishonoring God through breaking the law. And, you know, we can point our fingers at the 1888 people from, you know, that time, but are we doing the same thing? We can get up here and say, God's law is holy, just, and good, and that's what we're supposed to keep. And then if we reject Christ in our lives and we don't have his righteousness, we're in the same condition. And remember, Paul is teaching there is no respect of persons with God. So it doesn't matter if you're a Seventh-day Adventist or a Catholic or anything else. The bottom line is if you're breaking God's law, you're guilty. Now, notice... What he says next, verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. So here is God's chosen people, the Jews. Of course, by the time Paul wrote this, the Jews were no longer the chosen. But yet, here are a group of people who know about God. They're supposed to point others to him. And yet, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles through the Jews. Now, that is a horrible record to have against your name, that you have blasphemed God's name to the heathen. And I won't spend too much time on this, but people who try to make the claim that America is a Christian nation have mercy. I mean... How much money does the Hollywood industry make? And they make mega millions every year. And a high percentage of Americans say that they are Christian. And yet that's what Christianity is. 
and all the crimes and sins that we see here in this country, that's what Christianity is. And so when the rest of the world looks at America, if that's what Christianity is, that is do we want to have anything to do with that? And let's bring it closer to home. What about Seventh-day Adventism? Do we bring honor to God's name or do we blaspheme his name among those outside of us? If they were to come into our group, would they find a group of people who are harmonious, working together, trying to be unified in Christ, or are we playing silly petty games, you know, arguing about order of service and this, that, and the other thing, and dishonoring God's name? Now, the point of all this is this. Those who break God's law dishonor God. And we see earlier that those in the, who in the judgment have repented, they receive glory, honor, and peace. But the other way to look at this is, look, those who break God's law, they're dishonoring God. However, if through the grace of God we are obedient, God is being honored through our lives. So instead of God's name being blasphemed among the heathen, our lives are actually giving glory to his name. And it's interesting, the first angel's message says, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. God wants a group of people who give glory to his name rather than blaspheme his name. Who are those who blaspheme his name? Those who dishonor him by breaking his law. And God is no respecter of persons in the judgment. So if you're a Seventh-day Adventist or anybody else, if you're breaking the law in the judgment, you receive the wrath of God. That's the simple point of Romans. If, however, you have repented and you receive God's grace, you will receive eternal life. And, of course, it's only through the riches of God's goodness, which we see here in Romans chapter 2. Now, this is, looks like we'll be able to finish the chapter here pretty soon. Starting in verse 25... This is where Paul tries to make the point about what spirituality and conversion really is to the Jews that he's trying to reach. In verse 25 he says, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Then verse 26, Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? So maybe I'm just going to draw this on the board here. Diagrams sometimes are, are helpful. Thank you. This should be good here. So Paul is going to make a comparison between circumcision... and uncircumcision. <clears throat> and these are outward manifestations of the flesh that are supposed to represent an inward spiritual experience. So what Paul is saying is, look, if you are circumcised but you break the law, God is no respecter of persons, you're out. If you're uncircumcised and you're obedient, then you're good. So if you're a Gentile, you're uncircumcised, even, even though outwardly you don't have that manifestation in the flesh of an inward experience, if you're keeping the law, then you're okay. 
Verse 20, and that's what he says in verse 26. Verse 27, he says, And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? So notice this. When in, in verse 26, when Paul says, If you're uncircumcised, but, the, but you keep the righteousness of the law, you're counted for circumcision. Now that's interesting. Because... Notice this word here, counted for circumcision. This word counted comes up again later in the book of Romans. It's the word being counted as righteous. That's the word for justified. So the first time this word shows up in the book of Romans, it's someone who is uncircumcised, they're a Gentile, according to the flesh, but they are actually keeping God's law, and therefore their righteousness is counted for circumcision. Now here's the question, are they keeping the law outside of themselves, or is it an inward experience that has happened? And as you study on through the book of Romans, in this chapter, we'll see this is describing an inward experience. And so, the other thing that you see here is that those who keep the righteousness of the law are counted for circumcision. The other thing that you see is they're keeping the righteousness of the law. So, and it's counted for circumcision. So, what you could also say then is that righteousness and circumcision are spiritual equivalents. So someone who's uncircumcised but they keep the righteousness of the law are actually counted as circumcised. Therefore, circumcision and righteousness are similar. Now in verse 28, Paul says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. So Paul is saying, look, I don't care if you were born a Jew. If you're breaking God's law, you are not spiritually circumcised. And then notice verse 29. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. So notice this. You could be a Jew outwardly, but if you do not have the inward experience you're not a Jew. So let's think about it this way. <clears throat> In the physical sense, Jews are circumcised. Gentiles are uncircumcised. And we can also say, spiritually speaking, a spiritual Jew is spiritually circumcised. And if you want to call it a spiritual Gentile who is breaking God's law, they're spiritually uncircumcised. Now, notice the definition of a true Jew. It's, in verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. So that means that spiritual circumcision is meant to represent a in, an inward experience. And notice what Paul said in that earlier verse, that if those who the Gentiles who were actually keeping the law are counted for circumcision. 
That means if you're counted for circumcision, and circumcision, a true Jew has an inward experience. That means if you're counted for circumcision or counted for righteousness, you actually have an inward experience, which is actually very different than what a lot of Bible scholars say about righteousness by faith. A lot of Bible scholars say that when you're counted as righteous, it's only the righteousness of Christ that covers you even though inwardly you haven't changed. And yet Paul is saying, look, in order to be a Jew, you have to be one inwardly and your circumcision is of the heart. That means a changed heart. That means in order to be counted righteous, your heart has to be circumcised. A new heart, which is a new covenant experience. So it's interesting, you know, people say, and you know, I won't spend too much time on this, but you know, people like Desmond Ford say the gospel is found in Romans 3, 4, and 5. And so they ignore Romans 1 and 2, and they ignore Romans 6, 7, and 8 when it comes to understanding justification. Well, if you look at Romans chapter 2, the word counted, it's right there, and it's related to an inward experience. So Paul lays that foundation, and once he lays that foundation, then when you get to Romans chapter 3, and we start talking about being justified by faith, you understand, based on what he said in Romans chapter 2, what it's talking about. So that's Romans chapter 2 in a nutshell. So in a nutshell, Jews and Gentiles, there's no respect of persons with God, and the people who bring honor to God's name are those who have an inward experience. So you may be a so-called Christian outwardly. Hey, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. But if you haven't been changed in your heart, you can call yourself whatever you want, but that's not how God sees it.